The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. When the Apostle John was in exile on the island of Patmos, the Lord Jesus appeared to him and at one point he said to him these words, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I am the first and the last. There are many ways to understand those words, but I'm going to apply them to the issue of history, the unfolding of events in human history. As we come to Matthew 26 through 28, we come to a narrative section of the Gospel of Matthew in which the history of the greatest events that has ever happened on this earth are unfolded for us. We have the steps that Jesus Christ took toward the cross, toward his death on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We have that laid out for us in detail. And also his burial and his glorious resurrection on the third day. These events are laid out for us. And I've said before, I say again, that there is no religion on the face of the earth for which history is so important as Christianity. We rely on the on the facts recorded in this story to be true. The Apostle Paul said if they're not true, we're all wasting our time as Christians. But thanks be to God, they are true. Christ was crucified according to the scriptures. He was buried, and on the third day he was raised to life according to the scriptures. Now when the text says in 1 Corinthians 15, according to the scriptures, what that means is that God had planned this whole thing out before the foundation of the world. You heard what Daniel said, quoting from 2 Timothy. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, before the world began. But now it has been revealed and made known by the ministry of the gospel. And so we have this history laid out for us. We come to the final steps in Matthew's gospel, this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ as he took the faithful steps to the cross. And I believe the cross of Jesus Christ is the center of all of human history. Right at the center. Some people have denied that history has any significance at all. Those same people deny that life has any significance at all. Some people think, uh, in the words of Shakespeare, that history is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. But that is not true. Amen? It's not a tale told by an idiot. It does signify something. It signifies the glory of God in the salvation of sinners like you and me from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's what this story is about. That God may get glory by sinners being saved. And the cross is right at the center of that. History has a purpose. It has a direction. There's an alpha and there's an omega. And Jesus is both the alpha and the omega and every letter in between. But there's an unfolding story here. And the cross is at the center. As one hymn writer put it, in the cross of Christ I glory, towering over the wrecks of time. All the light of sacred story gathers round its heart, head sublime. Everything focuses on the cross. In the Western world, we divide history in, in halves, B.C., before Christ, and A.D., in the year of our Lord. And the cross, I think, right at the center of that, 
The cross is at the center of human history. It's why the Son of God came to earth. It says in Matthew 20 and verse 28, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The cross, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is prefigured throughout history. It says in Romans chapter 1 verse 2, Paul is an apostle of the gospel. The gospel he promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures. And so God prefigured this. He predicted it. He gave it for us so that we would know what it meant when it came, when Jesus Christ came. For instance, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve ate from the fruit of the tree, and they realized, their eyes were open, they realized they were naked, and they felt ashamed, and they hid from one another, and they hid from God. You know that God slayed an animal. His blood was shed, and, it covered, and, and he covered Adam and Eve. That, that dead animal was a picture of the cross of Christ. So also was Abel's sacrifice of the firstborn from the flock. Acceptable to God, a picture of Christ's saving work. So also was, Ark's, was Noah's ark floating safely above the floods of the wrath of God. A safe haven, a refuge. The only one on the planet, the only place you could be. If the breath of life was in your nostrils, the only place you could be and be safe was in Noah's ark. A picture of the salvation that God has worked for us in Christ. So also that ram in the thicket caught by its horns on Mount Moriah. When God had commanded Abraham to take his son, his only son, Isaac, whom he loved, and to offer him as a burnt offering to God. And the angel of the Lord stopped him. And then there was that ram, and he died in the place of his son. The exodus of Egypt was a picture of the saving work of Christ. As the people of God were in bondage, they were in slavery, they could not rescue themselves. And God, by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm, delivered them through Moses. A picture of the saving work of Christ on the cross. And in, the, in that time, in that era, the Passover lamb that was slaughtered and its blood was painted on the doorpost and the lintel. And the angel of the Lord saw that blood and passed over and would not bring the death that the inhabitants of that house deserved because he saw the blood. The Passover lamb, a picture of the saving work of Christ. Every animal sacrifice that was ever offered in the Levitical era was a picture of the saving work of Christ. The substitutionary atoning work of Christ. And so as we come to Matthew 26 through 28, we're ascending step by step gradually to the cross. And we're coming to the centerpiece of all of human history, the saving work of Jesus Christ for sinners on the cross and at the empty tomb. The Apostle Paul, in his ministry, made this commitment. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now we know that he taught many things, even details of theology. But when he was saying that, he was saying that the cross of Christ, Christ crucified is the center of his theology. And he could never preach without proclaiming Christ and him crucified. As he says in another place in Galatians 6.14. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Amen. So let's make that our central boast, amen? The central boast of my life is the cross of Jesus Christ, of Christ crucified. And so in Matthew 26, we see step by step now, preparation for the cross, preparation. We're going to talk about preparations and predictions that were made in the Old Testament era, in the lavish worship that this, this woman, Mary, does in preparing him for burial, and in the betrayal of, G, of Judas for 30 pieces of silver. Now in subsequent weeks, 
We're going to see the Last Supper. We're going to see Gethsemane, the arrest and trial of Jesus. We're going to see Peter's denial, threefold denial. We're going to see the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus. And then gloriously, his resurrection and the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel. That's where we're heading. Where have we been? Well, as you look at verse 1, it says, When Jesus had finished saying these things... He said to his disciples. And so I think there's just a flow right from uh, Matthew 24 and 25 right into chapter 26 verse 1. So Jesus had been teaching them many things about the end of the world. About the second coming of Christ. About the destruction of the temple. You remember what happened how Jesus left in Matthew 23. Crying out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then he walked out. The glory of Israel walked out of the temple of God and it departed. And the disciples came and said, Look at these magnificent stones, speaking of the temple and of the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus said, do you see all these stones? I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. The disciples were distressed by this and came to him in private and said, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Matthew 24 and 25 is the answer to that question. And I'm very tempted to go ahead and just preach him again. But we're going to go ahead into 26 now. But Jesus said, be ready The end is going to come at a time you're not aware of, like a thief in the night, you need to be ready. And he gave them how they could be ready. And at the very end, the sheep and the goats, the story, it's just an analogy, but about the second coming and judgment that's going to come. When the Son of Man comes, when Jesus comes, he will come in his Father's glory and all the holy angels will be with him. And he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. And all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people, one from another, As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he's going to put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And he's going to say to the sheep on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And he's going to say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now the question comes, on what basis is that division made? What is the basis of the separation between the sheep and the goats? What's the difference? And that's what Matthew 26 through 28 answers. It's because Jesus shed his blood on the cross for those people called sheep. That's why they are qualified for the inheritance of heaven. Not because of anything that they have done, but because of the mercy of God. And so when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away. And the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So we come to the preparations made for the Passover and then for the death of the true Passover lamb who is Jesus. Now the cross was predestined before the foundation of the world. It was prepared and predestined. God wasn't making this up as he went along. Everything had been laid out. Everything had been planned. As John himself saw on the island of Patmos, he calls Jesus the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. What a mysterious expression that is. But Jesus in some sense was slain from the creation of the world. Revelation 13.8. Peter puts, this, puts it the same way in 1 Peter 1. It says, you were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. A lamb without blemish or defect. Pointing to the Passover lamb. He was chosen 
before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. So Jesus was chosen out as our substitutionary lamb before the world began. By this plan then, all human actors, all of Jesus' enemies, including Judas and Caiaphas and Herod and Pontius Pilate, and the chief priests, all of the enemies of Christ, are operating on a divine plan laid out before the foundation of the world. Peter preached this very plainly in his Pentecost sermon in Acts 2.23. He says, Jesus was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, have put him to death, nailing him to the cross. And so this is the plan of God. The church prayed the same thing in Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus. They did what your power and will had predestined should happen. And so everything, not just the cross itself, but the details of what led up to the cross are predestined, laid out in the plan of God before the foundation of the world. And now being acted out in space and time, being acted out in history by people who didn't know necessarily that they were acting on the plans of God. I don't think any of them, even Jesus' friends, understood it. But certainly not Jesus' enemies. Now, what we need to keep in mind then is the events of this, this story of Matthew 26 and 27, the events of Christ's arrest and his suffering and his crucifixion are not some tragic accident some twist of fate, some strange bad luck that happened to a really good man who was trying to help people and got trapped or caught in a maelstrom of politics and jealousy and, and petty plots that were over his head and he couldn't control that so that people would say, even at that time, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Don't you believe it? He could have saved himself at any time. And Jesus made this very, very plain in John 10 and verse 18. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down freely of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it back up again, this command I received from my Father. So this is a transaction, Jesus is saying, between my Father and I. And no one has the power to kill me if I didn't give them that power. He could have stopped it at any time. So... Matthew, I think especially, gives us a lot of Jesus' own statements at this time, which Mark and Luke don't as much. They just unfold the history. Matthew says Jesus predicted it, and he speaks the words through Jesus. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, verse 2, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So Mark and Luke just say the Passover is two days away, and Jesus was about to be handed over to be crucified. But, but Jesus speaks the words in Matthew's gospel. Jesus' power to predict the future proves his deity. Also, he's been predicting this thing again and again in, in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the fourth and final prediction in the Gospel of Matthew of these very events. It began back in Caesarea Philippi. Remember when he asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And got the answers, what about you? And Peter gave that incredible testimony. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew 16, 21, for the first time in Matthew's Gospel, it says, from then on, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem 
and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So again and again he warns them. John's gospel tells us a little more clearly why he did this ahead of time. In John 14, 29, Jesus said, I've told you now before it happens so that when it happens, you may believe that I am. That's what it says in the Greek. You know, usually they add the words, I am he, or I am the one I claim to be. But it's just, I am. So you may believe that I am God. I predicted all of this ahead of time, including my own arrest. So when it's happening, do not think of me as weak and a victim, caught in events that I can't control. I am laying down my life for you. This was no accident. And the timing of it was no accident. Was it an accident that Jesus died at the same time that the Passover was being celebrated? It's no accident at all. The timing of this was perfect. The Passover was a beautiful picture of what Jesus was seeking to accomplish on the cross. Which is very hard for us to understand. How could a dead Jewish man 2,000 years ago benefit me at all? Well, the animal sacrificial system, the death of the animal, the animal sacrifice points to it. The lessons of substitution, of the shedding of blood, of, of the substitutionary victim who dies and whose blood then averts the wrath of God. And there's a clear picture of that in the night of the tenth plague when the angel of death passed over when he saw the blood. And so John the Baptist pointed at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was precisely that, the fulfillment of all of this. And notice the timing. Isn't it marvelous how God's timing is perfect and the timing of Jesus' enemies are, is all wrong. They got it all wrong. Isn't it amazing? They are orchestrating Jesus' arrest secretly by some tricky means, right? But what do they say right here in this text? Not during the feast, they said. Or there may be what? A riot among the people. When did it happen? During the feast. How is that? Because they're not in charge. They're not in control. God wanted it during the feast to fulfill the imagery of the feast. It's just as it said in Luke 22, verse 22. The Son of Man will go just as it was decreed. He's going to go exactly when it was decreed and how it was decreed. And there's nothing that man can do about it. The Jewish leaders would love to have squirreled him away in some quiet little cell, a holding cell, until all of the throngs of pilgrims were gone. And then they could dispose of him without having to deal with popular, uh, popular opinion. And so look at how the enemies are plotting uh, his demise. Verses 3 through 5. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him, but not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Caiaphas, one of the most evil men in history, the high priest, a puppet, really, under his father-in-law, Annas, and under the Romans, ultimately, Jesus was a threat to them. They were jealous of him. They were jealous of his hold over the people. Jealous of his strange ability to perform miracles. Which they did not attribute to God. But it was just strange to them. They attributed it to Beelzebub. But they were mostly concerned about their position in the religious machinery there in Jerusalem. Which was very lucrative for them. As they were making lots of money off the animal sacrificial system. A whole machinery which was bringing them tons of money. And Jesus 
was overturning benches and scattering pigeons and throwing coins out of the temple and, and messing up their whole operation. And so they wanted him dead. They wanted to kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot. The feast would have been the worst time for them, as far as they were concerned, to kill him. They were very afraid of the people. Isn't it beautiful how it says in Proverbs 19 and verse 21, Many are the plans of a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. And so it is in this case. So we see that preparation. Secondly, we see the preparation through a woman's love and faith, her sacrificial act of faith and love. Look at verses 6 and 7. The act is described for us. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Now, all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all four have an anointing story. They all have an anointing story. Now, in Luke's Gospel, it happens earlier, and it's different. It's a sinful woman there who's known for her sinful life. And she anoints Jesus' feet with her tears and dries them with her hair. But the other accounts in Matthew, Mark, and John all happen later. And it seems that it's the same as what happened in John. That this is actually Mary, uh, the, the, the um, sister of Martha and Lazarus, who's doing this anointing. Uh, She's a godly woman, and we know the story about, about Martha and Mary and Lazarus, mostly from John's gospel. The same, uh, the, the, the location is given as the home of Simon the leper in Bethany, east of Jerusalem, just a couple uh, miles away. And so this woman, now she's not identified in Matthew's gospel, but we feel fairly certain that it was Mary, Lazarus, and Martha's sister. And so what does she do? Well, she pours out this she breaks this alabaster jar. You could picture a very slender-necked alabaster jar, which itself would have been very, very costly, filled with this incredibly expensive perfume, this, this liquid, which could be poured out. And it was. She broke the neck of this, of this alabaster vial and just pours it on his head. And it just comes flowing down his hair. And, and, and just overwhelmingly lavish gift. So you picture, I know it, it's sometimes called an ointment, but I picture an ointment as a little bit thicker and wouldn't come running down. I think it was a liquid, more like a perfume, a rich, maybe thick liquid. John said it was pistic nard, which they understand is coming from the head or spike of a fragrant plant from India, belonging to the genus Valeriana, which yields a juice of delicious odor, very aromatic. And when she does this, it says that the whole house was filled with the aroma of this expensive gift. It just seemed to waft from Jesus and, and just moved until every room in the house was filled with this aroma. It was an overwhelmingly extravagant offering. Judas, who knew how to price things, he was good at money. He valued it at about a year's wages, 300 denarii, denarii is a, a day's wage. So that's about, about a year's worth of wages for a, a laborer. In our, our time, it'd be, I don't know, thirty to $50,000 poured out on Jesus' head, down on the ground. And when the disciples saw this, it says they were indignant. All of them were. It wasn't just Judas. They were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a very high price and the money given to the poor. John goes more into Judas's heart. Find out exactly what's going on in Judas's mind at this moment. 
John 12, 5 and 6, he says the same words. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. So it seems like Judas was the spokesman at that point for all of their thoughts. But John goes on in John 12, 6. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So that was Judas's motive. But really, all of the disciples, it seems, were thinking the same thing. Isn't it amazing how off the twelve were in the last hours of Jesus' life? I mean, really how messed up they were, how off message they were. I mean, it's really a, a very shameful record of their behavior there on the last night. They're completely out of step here with Jesus' mentality. Not, not surprising, we'll talk more about that, but it gets worse. They spent time that very night arguing about which of them was the greatest. Which I think led to Jesus washing their feet. Judas is about, he's one of the twelve, he's about to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Peter arrogantly boasted that even if all of the other 11 uh, fell away, he never would. He's better than all of them. They failed to watch and pray in Gethsemane, as Jesus told them to do several times, but just kept falling asleep. Judas betrayed uh, Jesus with a kiss, one of the most disgusting acts in human history. All the rest of them, once Jesus is seized, deserted him and fled. Peter denied him three times before the rooster crowed. All in all, it was a very shameful display. And these were the chosen ones. These were the ones that Christ chose to build his church upon at the human level. You know what all it is is a display to me of depravity and of our need for a savior. Amen. We wouldn't think for a moment, just as also in the case of Adam, that we would have done any better than Adam did in the garden or that they would have done that night. We need a savior. We are broken sinners. We cannot save ourselves. And this is after watching Jesus for three years and listening to him teach for three years. This is who they were. Now the woman is defended by Jesus. Look at verses 10 through 12. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing for me. The poor you will always have with you. But you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Now friends, I don't think there's anything wrong with asking the question, what would Jesus do? But the more you read the gospel accounts, the more surprising a figure Jesus turns out to be. So sometimes you're not sure what he would do. So I think it's good for us to study and try to answer the question. But would you have predicted, especially after the sheep and the goats thing... That Jesus would have defended the pouring out of a year's worth of wages on his head down so it went all over the floor. I wouldn't have predicted that. I think that the, the apostles were all thinking the same thing. That Jesus was off at this moment. But instead he rebuked the disciples. Why are you bothering this woman? Stop bothering her. And he defended her actions. She has done a beautiful thing for me. The Greek word is a beautiful word. It's, it's morally pure. It's a sense of moral purity here. A sense of the beauty of its goodness. And then he quotes Deuteronomy 15.11. There will always be poor people in the land, it says. Deuteronomy 15.11. Therefore I command you to be open-handed and generous towards your brothers. Toward the poor and needy in your land. Now Mark adds an interesting phrase at this moment. Mark 14, 7, the poor you will always have with you, listen, 
and you can help them anytime you want. We'll get back to that phrase later in the sermon. That phrase haunts me every day. Do I want to help the poor today? Jesus said I can help them anytime I want. We'll get back to that. Basically, though, for the rest of your lives, you'll be surrounded by poor and needy people. But you will not always have me, he said. And then he gives the real significance. She was preparing Jesus' body for burial. Now, this was a shocking reminder of that which they all seemed to be forgetting. Jesus was about to die. I don't think any of them really fully got it except this woman. Now, if this is Mary, who I think it was, she was a very contemplative person who sat at Jesus' feet and pondered deeply Jesus' teachings and took them to heart and believed that what he said was true. Oh, you're about to die. You're about to die. Maybe it's because she had no ambitions for sitting at right hand and left hand in the kingdom and all that. Her mind wasn't twisted by delusions of grandeur in the, in the coming kingdom. And so she was able to just listen to what he said and said, you know, he's about to die. And so she lavishes this to prepare him for burial. And then Jesus says an incredible thing. Look at verse 13. He says, I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Isn't that marvelous? Jesus' death would not end this movement. There is a story to tell to the nations. And that story not might be told, but it most certainly will be told throughout the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come, Matthew 24, 14. But riding along with the proclamation of the gospel comes this additional story. It's not at the center of the gospel. It's not the gospel. But it's a detail. And Jesus made her a promise, in effect, saying it would be told as a memorial to her. Friends, that prophecy is being fulfilled right now. Right now. This is a long way away from Jerusalem, friends. Many thousands of nautical miles. Many 2,000 years. And we're still telling the story. Jesus had it right. And so we are honoring what she did. Now we need to understand this act properly. We need to understand its uniqueness and also its pattern for us. There is a uniqueness to what she did that can never be repeated again. It's a unique moment in redemptive history. Jesus' own words say it. The poor you'll always have with you, but you're never going to have this moment again. This is a significant moment right here. You're not going to have me like this again. And as she's preparing me for burial, you will never need to prepare me for burial again. I will die, but I'll die just once for all time. And I will be buried, but I'll never be buried again. This is a once for all evening here. And she seemed to recognize that. And so it's utterly unique what she did. Completely unique. And yet, and yet, it's a pattern for all of us of lavish worship focused on Jesus. And so we have that song, Broken and Spilled Out, which comes right from this, uh, this account. And so I think that's right as well. Just as long as we give top priority to what Jesus said. This is a unique moment. It will never again be repeated. And she seemed to recognize that. And so what is so beautiful about that? Well, her action was based on faith. She believed Jesus' words. She believed that he would die. She heard and believed And so her actions were based on faith in the word of God. 
Secondly, it was loving. It was a display of her love for Jesus. It was poured out of a heart of love, of affection for him. Thirdly, it was lavishly sacrificial. It was costly. The true measure of love is sacrifice. How much love is willing to give? She was willing to give all that she had and poured it out on him. It reflects the generosity of God the Father in pouring out his son for us. And so this lavish gift by God the Father drew forth from her a lavish gift back. And that's a perfect picture of worship. I think that's what worship is. God moves first. He loves us. We move second. We love because he first loved us. And that's worship. And then fourth, it recognized the supremacy of Christ over all. Yes, it's right to serve the poor and needy. It's right and good. But we were created for worship. And Christ is at the center of worship. And so this Christ-centeredness in her mind was appropriate even above ministry to the poor and needy. It's more important to minister directly to Christ and to worship him than even giving to the poor and needy or preaching the gospel. Anything that we do vertically toward Christ is superior to anything we do horizontally. But we know from the sheep and the goats they are intimately connected together. We don't have Jesus with us anymore. But every time we minister to one of his children in his name, we're ministering to him. And so in the end, it becomes vertical as well. And finally, we see preparation through a disciple's treacherous betrayal in verses 14 through 16. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me? I mean, just ponder that for a moment. In light of what we just talked about. What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Do you not see the shocking contrast between Mary and Judas? Mary's all about what can I give? How can I pour myself out? Including money. Year's wages. What can I pour out? Judas was all about what can I get? What I think happened in all of the accounts, the ordering is the same. We have the anointing of Jesus. And then immediately Judas goes and trades Jesus in for 30 pieces of silver. I think what happened is he saw that the the game was up. The franchise was about to go down and and begin losing a bunch of money. And so he thought, it's time to sell the stock while I can. That's about what happened. Because all he cared about was money. He had no love for Jesus. He had no faith in Christ. And so it was about money. And it seemed like if we're going to be throwing out a year's worth of wages on the ground, I'm out of here. And so he goes and trades them in. Satan, according to Luke 22, entered Judas And it was because of that. And look at this disgusting price. 30 pieces of silver. A direct prophecy from Zechariah 11. Where the prophet there says, If you think it best, give me my wages. But if not, then keep them. So they paid out 30 pieces of silver. And then the Lord said to me, Throw them to the potter, that handsome price at which they valued me. That's what it says in Zechariah 11. Now we'll get to that prophecy. It's very clear. There's details. 30 temple throne, potter. Those are four details and we'll get to that in due time. Not today. Everyone breathing a sigh of relief. All right, Not today. But it is coming. And so they measured out 30 pieces of silver. But here's my question. What would it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? I, I sometimes picture Judas in hell seeing the 30 pieces of silver. Maybe in a 6 by 5 matrix. 30 silver coins there while he's in anguish. I don't think it was just this one action, but still. What would it profit a man to gain the whole world? It wouldn't, but he did it for 30 pieces of silver. 
And we should not minimize the pain of the betrayal to Jesus. We'll get into that more later. But it says in Psalm 41, even my close friend with whom I, whom I trusted, who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And so Judas agreed to basically be the eyes and ears and the, and the liaison for Jesus' enemies and hand him over to suitable time. Now, what application can we take from these 16 verses? Well, first and foremost, dear friends, come to Christ. Come to faith in Christ. Believe in him. Christ is the Passover sacrifice. His blood was shed on the cross for sinners like you and me. And do not think for a moment, I'm better than the disciples. I'm better than Judas. Those aren't the thoughts to have here. Instead, you should say, I need a savior like that. I'm a sinner. I've broken God's laws. I've lied. I've sinned. I've dishonored my parents. I have not loved God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I have not loved my neighbors, myself. I am not ready to face God on judgment day. I don't want to go to hell. Oh, save me. Save me, Jesus. Save me. And if you say that, he will save you. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Just call in the name of Jesus. Say, I want heaven and not hell. I want forgiveness and not condemnation. He will save you. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved is the wisdom of God and the power of God. So believe in that. If you've already come to faith in Christ, will you not marvel with me at the elaborate detail of the plan of God? How it was planned before the foundation of the world. How Christ was the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth. And how Jesus' enemies did what God had willed ahead of time should happen. Rest in that. Be confident in that. This world's not spinning out of control. God is sovereign on his throne. He is orchestrating even the smallest details of human history. Thirdly, imitate Mary's life of devotion. Her life of devotion to Christ. We have said and we must acknowledge the utter uniqueness in redemptive history. Never again will there be any need to anoint Jesus' head to prepare him for burial. Amen. Hallelujah. Having died, he never dies again. Death no longer has mastery over him. He has risen. Hallelujah. There's no need for that. But still, Mary's generosity is a paradigm example of how we should be living our lives. Start with faith. Read in the scripture and find out what is God doing in the world. What does he want you to do? In Mary's case, it was, oh, Jesus is about to die. That's not our case. That's not what's about to happen. Jesus is coming again. And we're supposed to look ahead to the day of God and speed its coming. That's got to be through our witness. Our testimony, the good deeds that we do to serve Christ. So start with faith. Secondly, love. Let, let your reading of Scripture and let the Holy Spirit pour out the love of God into your heart. First and foremost for Jesus. Allow the Spirit to move affection for Jesus in you. We sin when we don't love Jesus enough. We sin when our affection for Christ is insufficient and we go to idols instead. Say, Lord, I want to love you more. My love for you is imperfect. It's too small. Would you please increase my love for you? Give me the kind of love that Mary displayed when she poured out that year's worth of wages on your head. Thirdly, sacrificial. Make your life a sacrifice. Make your faith in Christ cost you something. Make it costly. Start with your body. He's not looking for a year's worth of wages and a perfume to be poured out. Start with your body. Present your body as a living sacrifice. The Apostle Paul did. Didn't he say at the end of his life, even if I am being poured out like a drink offering, 
I am being poured out like a drink offering, then be poured out. Say, God, I want to I spend myself for you and for your glory. And then Christ exalting. Saturate your mind in the greatness of Christ and focus on him that everything you do may be for his glory. I want to finish with one application concerning ministry of the poor and needy. Remember how I said, there's that haunting phrase in Mark 14, 7. The poor you'll always have with you and you can help them anytime you want. Anytime you want. Do you want to? Do you want to? And if you don't, then repent. That's where I'm at. That's what Mark 14, 7 does to me. If I don't want to help the poor and needy, then I need to repent. And so make my life a poured out fragrant offering to God for the poor and needy. Now, the ultimate poverty in the world is spiritual poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So let's start with those who are poor because they don't know Christ. They're lost. Does that matter to you? Are you concerned about it? Thinking about... Please forgive me my scientific side here. Thinking about the principle of diffusion. Amen. Diffusion. Some of you are geeks just like me. All right. What is diffusion? Well, when that, that thing was broken, it started happening. And it just kind of, kind of wafted up out of the bottle and just started to spread. And when it was poured out, it just really started to spread at that point. And every room in the house was filled with that fragrance. Diffusion. All right. Jesus actually talks about the same thing in another sense in the text. He says, wherever this gospel is preached... Throughout the world. That's a different kind of diffusion, isn't it? You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Diffusion, right? So now I'm at, okay, what's in the bottle? What's in the bottle? What's in you? So that when the, when the, the cap gets broken off, what comes wafting out? Take a minute, if you would, and look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And verse 2. Sorry, 1 Corinthians 2. It's not verse 2, but 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. Sorry, 14 through 16. Finish with that. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. Listen to this. And through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, the smell of death, and to the other, the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? So here, this is where it starts. It, it, Jesus said in, in Matthew 12, 35, The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. Out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when, when you are, not your head, but you know, the top is broken off, you know what I'm getting at. And what's inside you wafts out, is it worth listening to? Is it the knowledge of Christ? And as that wafts out, are you for some people the stench of death? So that they're persecuting you because they just can't stand that smell. Because they can smell their own condemnation. It's so real. And to others, are you the aroma of life? Because they, can just, they just can feel the love of God through Christ in your life. 
And if not, then make sure that the good stuff's getting poured in the bottle. Fill your hearts with scripture. Take away the idols of this world, the worldliness and all that. And say, oh God, fill me with the word. Fill me with the gospel. Fill me with the knowledge of Christ. So that when the, the top of the bottle is broken off, what wafts out is worth smelling. Close, close with me in prayer, please. Father, we thank you for the beauty of the gospel. We thank you for the beauty of what Mary did. And uh, Lord, help us to imitate it. But ultimately, the center of this text is Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Thank you for him. And may we trust in him and in him alone for the forgiveness of our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.